I encourage you then to turn with me in your Bibles to the first part of the Bible. We're in the series in the book of Judges, and we've got to Judges chapter 10. You'll find it on page 210 in the church Bibles, Judges chapter 10. And this morning we'll be looking at, uh, at that chapter from verse 1 to verse 18. So as we come now to God's word, let's pray together. Let's pray. Our Father God, we pray that your word would do your work among us by your spirit to your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges chapter 10 and beginning at verse 1. Let's hear God's word. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Camon. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals and the Lord said to the people of Israel did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites from the Ammonites and from the Philistines the Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress." And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead, and the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah, and the people 
the leaders of Gilead said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. I don't know about you, but when it comes to this topic of sin, I find it wonderfully easy to think of other people's. I used to think when I first began preaching that preaching on love would be an easy theme to preach on in a congregation. Surely everyone wants to hear about love. But what I soon discovered was if you preached on love, the kind of feedback you tended to get was really quite unloving, ironically enough. People will come up to you and tell you that your biblical theology of love was not quite accurate, that you misinterpreted some philosophical rendition of love in its comparison with various biblical texts. In other words, that your phylacteries were not wide enough nor your tassels long enough. But preach on sin and by and large, congregations really enjoy it. It's so easy in our mind's eye, you see, to begin when we hear a sermon on sin to think about other people's, those horrible sinners out there, those immoral people, those bad people, those people different from us. It's a sort of good corporate moment to have a really good rant about the things that we do not like. Speaking of really good rants, the, the, the people who sue you all the time, your lawsuits. I lived, as some of you would know, the first 29 years in England and was never sued once. Not that people didn't like me from time to time, but they never thought the way to deal with me was to issue a lawsuit. But in my first, years in, in, first eight years in America, I was sued twice. One time through a minor fender bender when someone bump, bumped into someone and they got outside and it was raining and, and then they, in the lawsuit they put that they, 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 they were suing me for the damage that was done to their suit at the time even though the person who came to help us was a member of the church I was at and we sheltered under their umbrella, I kid you not. Another person sued us because they slipped on a porch when it was raining, when it was wet. Look out for outside today. And if, in case you're thinking about making it number three, I found some really good lawyers through that process, so don't bother. <laughs> Those people we don't like. The people always doing lawsuits. Those horrible, immoral people. Those revolting Democrats, I mean Republicans. Those other people. So easy when we hear a topic, the topic of sin, to think about other people's. Here in this story, God's people initially are convicted by sin, sort of. And then they finally get convicted. And in this story, what we're seeing is that God in his love and grace towards us cannot bear our misery, and so he bears our sin. And there are basically three movements that three in, this, in this story. Uh, the first is that sin leads to misery. 
then sin is idolatry. And then genuine repentance is desperate. So first, sin leads to misery. You can see this, of course, as it's described in, from verses 6 through to 9. They, all these people come and invade them, and the, the, the Israelites are, are greatly repressed by all these other countries around and their society and their economy and their social, the social fabric of, of, of their interrelationships has all been devastated. And in conclusion, the, the author of Judges tells us that Israel was severely distressed. They were miserable. Now, those of you who are tuned and listened to the scripture readings we read out just a moment ago will know that I kind of skipped over the first five verses. It's really, if you want a challenge, pick Judges chapter 10 verses 1 to 5 alone for your next Bible study. Try and figure out what the application of it is. You've got Tola, who was leading Israel for 23 years, and then you've got Jair, who led Israel for 22 years, and uh, well, Jair had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys and they had 30 cities. And as we all know, the number 30 is particularly symbolic in the Bible of, I don't know. <laughs> all I can get out of those first five verses by way of application, if we intimate that these were good leaders, as I think is the implication as they led for 22 and then 23 years, and then after that, Israel went back to Baal. So often is that the case. And the sin led to misery, social, personal, relational, economic. You can be a Christian following God and feel miserable. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, in his church's publication called The Sword and the Trowel, the church he pastored was called Metropolitan Tabernacle, in that publication he once wrote about his own experience with misery. He called it the minister's fainting fits. And Charles Spurgeon throughout his life struggled with feeling sad. What we would call being depressed. And he he writes about his, the pain, the darkness of it. All the while he's leading this huge church with an international reputation and and comes across as the most vibrant person you could possibly imagine. Smoking cigars on the way to the church with great exuberance. But he also had a, a darkness. When I say sin leads to misery, don't hear me as being unempathic with those here who struggle with sadness. Christians sometimes do. It's not always a sign of your sin that you feel sad. 
Some people are just temperamentally less upbeat than others. Some people have walked through deep traumas and it has scarred them. Why Spurgeon struggled with that has been a conversation for historians over and over again. Some people think it was his experience of preaching to a packed congregation when someone cried out fire and there was a stampede and he watched as people were crushed to death when he was a young preacher. Other people think it was his physical makeup that, that damaged his sense of well-being. But though Spurgeon felt sad, he also rejoiced in Christ's finished work for him. He also knew that God loved him with an eternal love. And while he struggled with that temperamental, circumstantial, personal darkness, he knew he was in the light. But sin leads to misery. If you are a Christian and you feel not just Spurgeon-like sadness, but your whole being seems separated, you need to ask some serious questions. There really are only two possibilities for a Christian to, to be uh, experienced this kind of misery. As a Christian, if you're in sin, well, the old saying is the most uncomfortable place to sit is on the fence. And sometimes Christians do sit on the fence. There are only really two possibilities. One is that, like Spurgeon, you have a temperamental, circumstantial, experiential tendency to what he called his fainting fits. That certainly is a real possibility, and I know many people like that. The other possibility is that you're in sin. That's an important question to ask yourself. It's also an important question for us to ask about society today. Could it be that the sense of darkness that is over our country and our cities and even sometimes our churches is not so much to do with some sort of socio-economic, complicated, political maneuvering as a fundamental rejection of God? For sin leads to misery. There's only one Lord And submitting to him is the royal road to happiness. God cannot bear our misery, so he bears our sin. First, sin leads to misery. Second, sin is idolatry. This is predominantly uh, from verses 10 through to verse 14, though you, of course, will find it throughout this this chapter and many other places in the Bible too. When it comes to what is really going on, God's diagnosis is that their sin is fundamentally and foundationally idolatry. Look at verse 14. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Their sin was fundamentally and foundationally idolatry, a wrong worship. 
There are many different definitions of sin you can find in the Bible and in Christian literature, but at its root, it's worship gone awry, worshiping the wrong thing. Even the Ten Commandments make this very clear. At the beginning of the Ten Commandments, uh, God says, I am the Lord your God who, wor- who rescued you from Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And then the rest comes. Sin is not simply breaking some sort of random list of religious rules. There are all these religious rules that sometimes religious communities make up. Thou shalt not live on the front row and not sit on the front row during church time. Uh, thou shalt not preach for over 15 minutes in church for the Lord made uh, the whole universe in six days and surely you could get to the point in 15 minutes. Thou shalt not preach for under 40 minutes for thou knowest that to be truly spiritual thou must keep people interested for over 40 minutes. Thou must answer after church whether thou art fine that thou art absolutely fine though thou feelest terrible. All these religious rules. No, it's sin is a worship issue. I don't mean literally singing songs about your car. Maybe you do, but maybe you have a wonderful car. Maybe you do worship your car, though I've seen some of your cars, and I doubt whether you worship them. But the orientation of your mind and your heart, it's not literally that you're... If, if you have an idolatry in your relationship in, in somewhere or other, it's not literally you're singing praise Jane from whom all blessings flow. And if you have an idolatrous relationship to your city or your country or, or your social network, it's not literally you're singing you know, great is Wheaton's faithfulness. But the orientation of your mind and your heart is fixed on something other than God. Uh, The great evangelist um, uh, uh, Michael Green was once running a a mission, evangelistic series of events at Oxford University. And he was listening to a student give a testimony for how they became a believer. And Michael Green was sitting next to a, a prominent Oxford professor listening to this undergraduate college student give this testimony. And the prominent Oxford professor leant over to Michael Green and said, you know, I don't believe a word of this. And Michael Green leant back to him and said, oh, I know, but wouldn't you like to? Wouldn't you like to be rid of your misery? Wouldn't you like to put your trust in God? How do you know whether you have an idol? Uh, Number one, pay attention to what you pay attention to. When your mind is at rest, what are you thinking about? What is the focus of your thoughts and feelings? Pay attention to what you pay attention to. And then second, where are you putting your resources? Your time, 
the most valuable resource that any of us have. This hour will never be got back again. Once you've spent time, you can never, you can never get it back. Look at your calendar, your schedule. Of course, look at where you invest your money. Where our treasure is, there our heart is also, the Lord taught. God cannot bear our misery, so he bears our sin. Sin leads to misery. Sin is idolatry. Second, genuine repentance is desperate. Aren't you glad we're having a nice easy sermon on sin rather than the difficult one on love? Genuine repentance is desperate. Third, you'll see this by the comparison of what the the people of Israel say in verse 10 versus what they say in verse 15. In verse 10, they say, we've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and served the Baals, which is true. But then when God seems not to be ready to listen and tells them to cry out to the gods whom you have chosen to save them, the people of Israel say, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. That is desperate. No more self-justification. We've sinned. Do whatever you think's right. Every year, certain times of the year, as many of us will know, on the West Coast in California and perhaps elsewhere, also in America, if the weather and, and, the, and the environment has a, a set of circumstances that run together, there can be really dangerous fires, wildfires sometimes, fires that devastate thousands of acres and threaten lives, and, and there are very brave firefighters who go in to fight those fires. One such fire destroyed 31,000 acres of L.A. County, Los Angeles County, and devastated 21 homes. The authorities did an investigation to try and figure out why this, how this fire, how it all happened. And what they discovered was one boy had been playing with matches. Don't play with fire. Genuine repentance is desperate. I'm not asking you to run forward to the altar this morning or to, or to go backwards or forwards or sideways or up and down. It's not the physical movement that counts. It's the, it's the movement of your heart in desperation. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, one time on a Monday had someone come to visit him who'd heard him preach on the Sunday. And he said to him, Lloyd-Jones, this man said to Lloyd-Jones, you made a great mistake yesterday in not issuing an altar call, not asking me to come forward at that moment. If you had asked me to give my life to Jesus, right there and then I would have done so. And Lloyd-Jones looked at the person and said, well, I'm asking you now. 
And the person said, I'm not going to do it now. I would have done it yesterday. And Lloyd-Jones said, I don't want it then. Whatever only lasts 24 hours, I'm not interested in. It doesn't matter whether you stand up and down, shout, cry, weep, run up to the front, run backwards. What matters is genuine repentance is desperate. Don't play with fire. You say, what does, what does that look like? Someone once sent me a, uh, something that Jonathan Edwards wrote on this. This is what he, he said. I have often, since I lived in this town, had very affecting views of my own sinfulness and vileness. Very frequently so as to hold me in a kind of loud weeping, sometimes for a considerable time together, so that I've often been forced to shut myself up. I have had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness and the badness of my heart since my conversion than ever I had before. The phrase he uses to describe it is infinite upon infinite. He carries on. I know not how to express better what my sins appear to me to be than by heaping infinite upon infinite and multiplying infinite by infinite. I go about very often for this many years with these expressions in my mind and in my mouth. Infinite upon infinite. Infinite upon infinite. It is affecting to me to think how ignorant I was when I was a young Christian of the bottomless, infinite depths of wickedness, pride, hypocrisy, and deceit left in my heart. I have a vastly greater sense of my universal, exceeding dependence on God's grace and strength and mere good pleasure of late than I used formerly to have. And have experienced more of an abhorrence of my own righteousness. On one Saturday night in particular, had a particular discovery of the excellency of the gospel of Christ above all other doctrines. So that I could not but say to myself, this is my chosen light. My chosen doctrine. And of Christ, this is my chosen prophet. It appeared to me to be sweet beyond all expression to follow Christ and to be taught and enlightened and instructed by him to learn of him and live to him. Genuine repentance is desperate. Sin is idolatry. Sin leads to misery. But God cannot bear our misery. And so he bears our sin. He deals with the cause of the problem himself in his death for us on the cross. That we might be happy with him forever.
a nice easy sermon on sin. One of the great evangelists is called George Whitfield. And George Whitfield became a very prominent international public figure. And like all prominent public figures, Whitfield was lampooned and ridiculed and mocked and sneered at and criticized. That goes with the territory. There was one particular group of people who called themselves the Hellfire Club. They got together and imitated Whitfield's mannerisms when he was preaching, particularly when he was preaching about Hellfire. And they tried to outdo one another with the cadence and the, the mockery of Whitfield as he was preaching to, to other groups of people, to great hilarity. The Hellfire Club. One time, one of the leaders of this Hellfire Club, a man called Thorpe, was performing to a group of people, imitating the way that Whitfield would preach on hell and sending him up and making him a figure of fun and ridicule. So loud laughed all around as he was imitating Whitfield. And Thorpe was converted on the spot. How about you? Let's pray together. Our Lord God, as we come to this realization, this, as we reflect on this passage about sin, we pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be like the Pharisee who thanked you that he was not like other people, not as bad as the tax collector over there. Help us, Lord, to realize that when your word says there is no unrighteous, not even one, it includes each of us. Lord, as we go on in the Christian life, it is true that we become more aware of our own sinfulness. Patterns of behavior and patterns of thought that when we were young Christians seemed not that big a deal in the light of your glory seem increasingly infinite upon infinite. Help us, Father, to have a realistic view of ourselves. Father, we're surrounded in a culture that does everything it can to tell us all the time that we're good. But your word has a very different view of the human condition. Help us to feel as well as believe the truth of what you say about us.
And then, Lord, when we've had a good look at ourselves, help us to look to you. You who in your love could not bear our misery and so bore our sin and the death of Jesus on the cross. And though our sins are indeed infinite, your grace is infinite. And covers over it all. Lift us then from our misery. Save us, Lord, as uh, individuals, as a church, as your people. Help us to take your gospel to our homes, our families, our workplace. So that your word spreads and abounds. For all these things, we pray for the help of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.